Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Thanks, Beth. All right, let's pray. Father, as always, we pray that you'd be present with us as we hear these strange words read again, as we have these past few weeks. We pray that you would open our eyes so that we can see the light, that you'd open our ears so that we can hear the good news, open our hearts so that it becomes a part of who we are, and help us to go into the world with open arms, to be a people who follow the light and share Jesus with the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. So last week, we read about the beginning of the final judgment of evil in Revelation 15 and 16. And as we read that, we saw that it's terrible. It's terrifying. But we also saw that it's actually good news. Because this final judgment of evil reminds us that evil and chaos and destruction, it won't last forever. We saw that that judgment... This judgment is not aimed at those who might be doubters. It's not aimed at those who maybe haven't heard the good news. It's not aimed at the 15-year-old kid who's just caught up in the mess. There are other passages that speak to them. But Revelation, where we are now, this is talking to a different group of people. These are people who have made their choice. These are people who have chosen to be followers of the beast. They've chosen to follow evil to defiantly side with hatred and rage over mercy and love. So this judgment that we've been reading about, it's meant for those who know exactly who God is. They know what Jesus has done, and they reject it anyway. So this week, uh, we're going to read parts of chapter 17 and 18, and we're going to see that now it's the description of the judgment of institutions here on earth that promote evil, that promote the worship of evil, that draw people away from Jesus and toward the dragon. Remember, that symbol for everything that stands against the will of God. Next week, Sabrina is going to remind us again what it's like to be God's people, to be his bride, to be in his presence. And then in two weeks, we're going to hear the final judgment and destruction of the dragon, of evil itself. So that means that Revelation takes four chapters to describe to us the judgment and destruction of evil. Why? I mean, these are some of the most awful sounding passages. These chapters that we've been reading the past few weeks, this is the reason people are terrified of Revelation. So why take so much time? Why not just tell us briefly, succinctly, Jesus died on the cross, was resurrected, and will return. Evil is defeated, period. Why not say it in a way that's a little shorter and that sounds less, I don't know, insane? (laughs) Well, there are two really important reasons. So first, I want you to imagine that it's the year 95. And you're a Christian living in what is now modern-day Turkey, a province of Rome at the time. 
And maybe your grandparents, but at least many people from their generation, they suffered and were killed in fires and random acts of torture and persecution by the Caesar Nero 30 years earlier. There's a Roman historian named Tacitus. This comes from Roman history. And he talks about the terrible persecution of Christians during the time of Nero. He says this. He says, a vast multitude of Christians were not only put to death, but put to death with insult. They were either clothed in the skins of wild beasts and then exposed in the arena to the attacks of half-famished dogs, or else dipped in tar and put on crosses to be set on fire. And when the daylight failed, to be burned as lights by night. He goes on to say that Nero's persecution of Christians was so terrible that even non-Christian citizens were horrified and began to intercede on their behalf. And you have to understand the non-Christian world at the time, they did not get Christianity. There's some writing from just fairly normal people who were reporting what they noticed about the Christian community and some people thought they were cannibals because they celebrated a love feast where they feasted on the body and the blood of their savior. (laughs) There was a lot of misunderstanding about who Christians were. And even non-Christians were coming to their defense because what was happening to them was so terrible. So now it's back in the year 95. You and your church, you're actually facing something even worse. Nero was known throughout the world for being unpredictable and insane. He would persecute, but he picked and chose his moments. But Domitian, he was the Caesar at the time that Revelation was written, He was just as brutal, but he was more calculating and more predictable and consistent. His persecution of Christians wasn't random, it was total. If you were a Christian, if you wouldn't bend the knee to him and to Rome, then you were seriously at risk of suffering and losing your life. So we get four chapters. Because Jesus wants to reassure his church that evil that you're facing every day, it will be judged. And it will be destroyed completely, once and for all. It will not chase you down forever. There will be freedom from the persecution of this world. And not just the persecution of Rome or whatever empires to come. Revelation is proclaiming the end of evil's persecution of our souls forever. So the hope in that message, written to a suffering people... I would say that's worth four chapters. So that's one reason. But there's another reason that John is so detailed in his description of what evil is and also of what its destruction will look like. It's both a promise and it's a warning. If we allow ourselves to be seduced by evil, then we will suffer its same fate. But before we get into that, uh, let's read a little bit, and we're going to walk through this together. First, I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 17. Um, The institution that supports and promotes the dragon and the beast, Scripture calls it Babylon. So let's see what 17 has to say about Babylon and its future, or lack thereof. And um, I don't know, parents, you may want to earmuff for part of this with the kids. Just, I didn't write this, okay? So I'm sorry. Uh, One of the seven angels who carried the seven bowls came and invited me, come, I'll show you the judgment of the great whore who sits enthroned over many waters, 
the horror with whom kings of the earth have gone whoring. <laughs> Show you the judgment on earth dwellers drunk on her whorish lust. In the spirit, he carried me out in the desert and I saw a woman mounted on a scarlet beast stuffed with blasphemies. The beast had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, festooned with gold and gems and pearls. She held a gold chalice in her hand, brimming with defiling obscenities, her foul fornications. A riddle name was branded on her forehead. Great Babylon, mother of whores and abominations of the earth. I could see that the woman was drunk, drunk on the blood of God's holy people, drunk on the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Everybody with their eyes wide open, this is the word of God. <laughs> thanks be to God. Yeah, everyone's like, thanks be to God. <laughs> Watch your language next time. Um, I chose the message uh, because it actually, it does the best job of getting the mood of the Greek across. That really is how it reads in the Greek. That's not an exaggeration. So remember, we know Revelation doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. It's using dramatic imagery to describe symbols that represent some deeper reality that we have difficult seeing here and now. So who or what is Babylon? Who is this woman? Um, remember, Revelation doesn't teach us anything that we haven't already learned throughout Scripture. It's just showing it to us in this new and really dramatic way. So to understand Babylon, to understand this woman, you go back to the Old Testament. And it's a theme from start to finish. But let me just show you two instances where this is highlighted. Now, you may remember Babylon is the nation that destroyed Jerusalem, took God's people into captivity, but way before that. The story takes us all the way back to Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, I know that's a familiar story to many of you. Uh, human, humanity invents this technology, a brick, <laughs> and then decided to use it to build a tower up to the heavens. And we remember this story because in the end, God confuses their language and he scatters them out over the earth. But that's not the point of the story. That's just how the story ends. The point of the story is actually really simple and very clear. When any nation or culture chooses to advance itself outside the will of God, it is choosing to become its own God and eventually it is destroyed. Babylon is the symbol for any nation or culture that chooses to be its own God, that determines that it can build a better kingdom than the one that God has promised. So we meet Babylons in many forms all throughout scripture, in Egypt, Assyria, Persia, Greece, even at times, Jerusalem. As the revelation is written, Babylon is seen in the form of Rome. And that same pattern just goes on and on throughout history. Another pattern that goes on and on throughout history, we know the fate of Babylon, every Babylon. It's already determined, and we know this from history. Where is that great tower of Babel today? If it's a literal tower, it's nothing but a pile of bricks that's buried somewhere in the sand. Ancient Egypt, this nation that enslaved God's people, what is that nation today? It's ruins. It's a tourist attraction. Ancient Rome, the empire that ruled and ravaged the Western world, the empire that was a part of the crucifixion of Jesus, what is it now? It's in ruins. 
It's a tourist attraction. You see, the bottom line is that any nation or culture that is built by man is not the kingdom of God, will never be the kingdom of God, and is by definition a Babylon. Babylon is the symbol for the kingdoms that we build because we think we can do better than God. Now, the second place that this language shows up in the Old Testament, uh, we saw here that Babylon was presented to us as this woman clothed in fine things, drinking from this golden cup, but we find out that inside that cup, it's filled with just the worst things that you can imagine. Scripture like this has been used in history to put women down. But that is not the point. It is not about gender. It's not about women. This sounds harsh, but it has nothing to do with gender. Listen to this from Proverbs 5. And this is the same. This too is a symbol. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. The writer of this proverb, he's telling his student or his son, whichever it is, this is about idolatry. Stay away from false gods. Stay away from her. She's beautiful on the outside, but she will destroy you from within. You see, this language isn't sexist. It's meant to be used to compare and contrast one woman with another. If you remember back in Revelation 12, we've met another woman already. This one, a woman appeared in heaven, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. We read this weeks ago, this woman represents the entire people of God, God's holy bride, the Old and New Testament people united and present with Jesus forever. So we're faced with a choice. Which woman will you choose? To which one are you going to be faithful? The woman clothed with the sun, united forever with Christ? Or the one who looks beautiful and rich and glorious on the outside, but is actually perverse and decaying because of the horrors that are within her? And see, here's the thing. If you were a persecuted Christian 2,000 years ago, and you remember what I described earlier, if you're a persecuted Christian in some parts of the world today, being united with Christ, being faithful to the woman that is united with Christ, it might very literally cost you your life. Because of that, this other woman is seductive, attractive, and even though she might be rotten at her core with the stench of terrible things, in the moment, bowing down to her might keep you from being fed to the dogs or hanging dipped in tar on a burning cross. You know, I think one of the reasons that Jesus chose to give this revelation to John in particular to give to his churches, he was a pastor and all of these churches in Asia knew who John was, but I don't know if you knew this, John himself was dipped in tar to be hung on a cross and set on fire. But the way the story is told is that when he was dipped in the tar, they pulled him out and there wasn't a single mark on his body. And it terrified the Romans and it led them to think if we keep killing them, especially their leaders, the movement keeps growing. So let's just throw them in jail. The writer of Revelation knew what his people were going through. And he's telling them, you have still got to make the faithful choice. You got to choose the bride of Christ. 
What are you going to gain if you sell your soul to the world? So 2,000 years ago, Christians had to make a choice. Could they persevere through this? Could they hold on to faith and follow Jesus even if the Babylon of their day might destroy them for it? And through John, Jesus is being very graphic and very thorough in his language. The adulterous woman, Babylon, her fate is clear. She will always fall and crumble under the weight of her own evil. As you continue to read through chapter 17, you find that evil begins to just even attack itself. That's all it knows how to do. And in the end, she's left as nothing more than ruins. Nothing more than a tourist attraction. So don't follow her. Don't suffer the same fate. Because she's just not worth it. They were waking up every day in Babylon, every day faced with a choice. Which woman will I follow? The bride of Christ or the mother of harlots? Now look, we may not be facing the same persecution in the way that our brothers and sisters in the first century did. We're not facing it in the way that our brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia and the Middle East are facing it today. But that doesn't mean that we aren't still faced with the same question. So before we can answer the question, which woman will I choose? We've got to wrestle with, how do I know? How do I know when I'm waking up in Babylon too? Now here's the deal, this hits close to home, y'all. And I want you to know, uh, this is about human culture. This is about what happens to every human culture eventually. This is how Bruce Metzger says it. This is how he describes Babylon so that we can describe it today. He says, Babylon is an allegory of the idolatry that any culture commits when it elevates material abundance, military prowess, technological sophistication, imperial grandeur, racial pride, and any other glorification of the creature over the creator. And I'll tell you all, that is the key. Any glorification of the creature over the creator. That's how you know idolatry is set in. It says, in these chapters, we have an up-to-date portrait of what may occur when we idolize the gross national product, worship growth, and become so preoccupied with quantity that we ignore quality. Another Christian author, Daryl Johnson, he says the same thing in a different way. He says that throughout the Bible, there are seven marks of a culture that's taking on what he calls Babylon-ness. He says, you know you're waking up in Babylon when your culture leaves the living God out of the equation, is addicted to sensuality. And that's not just about sexuality, that's just about being attracted and persuaded and seduced by anything. When your culture tolerates injustice. In chapter 18, it goes on to describe injustice and it talks about slavery within Rome. But it talks about the fact that Rome, unique from every other culture, didn't just use slaves as labor, like many other cultures have throughout history. They use slaves for entertainment. This idea that injustice got to the point, not just of the marketplace, but of entertainment. That's how little we think of humanity. When a culture tolerates that, it has become Babylon. Worships products, is in a constant state of violence, relies on deception and counterfeit, and leads its people toward idolatry. Now look, I know that's hard. I mean, it clearly describes the culture in which we live today. Western culture, this is what it's becoming. But regardless of any political affiliation we might have or even a healthy sense of patriotism, I think that everybody knows that this is true. 
This is true about our current situation. We know that we're not waking up every day in the kingdom of God. We're waking up in Babylon. Everybody knows that our culture is broken. It's like the one thing we all agree on. We're just blaming the wrong things. We're blaming each other for it. And Revelation is trying to show us that while we want to blame each other, while we want to blame the other side, the real cause of this brokenness and chaos is evil itself. It is seducing and manipulating us to turn against one another and ultimately to turn against our Savior. So when we recognize Babylon, then we're faced with choices. So we can just ignore it. We can pretend like it's not a thing. We can keep on living in Babylon and just hope that everything turns out okay. If you choose that path, I wouldn't recommend looking at pictures of ancient Egypt or ancient Rome. We can take sides and we can fight within Babylon. We can keep fighting against each other. We can fight for the hope of the best possible Babylon. We can pretend that after thousands of years of human failure that we will finally be the ones who will create the perfect human utopia. Or, Revelation tells us, there's another choice. There's another way. So let's go back to the text for a minute. This is from chapter 18. This is after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. When it says Babylon the great, that's the culmination of all the Babylons together. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Remember the Tower of Babel trying to build a tower to heaven? Her sins have piled up to heaven instead. This is the third way to come out. Come out of her. But as usual, it doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. Because we can't actually physically leave Babylon. We can't literally come out of her because as we have seen, she's everywhere. You see, this isn't just a critique on our current culture. It's about every human culture that's ever existed. This is relevant to every Christian who has ever read these words. So we know that John is not telling, he's not telling us to move to Canada, right? We're going to get a good taste of it here this week. But he's not telling us to leave any country. This can't be instruction to physically leave a country because where else would we go? There's nowhere to go. Babylon's everywhere. So what does it mean? What are we to do? So you may be familiar with the phrase um, that as Christians, we are to be in but not of the world. Are you all familiar with that? Have you heard that before? Um, that we have no choice but to live in the world. However, we should be of a completely different kind of kingdom. That's good. It's true. That's, it's actually not a quote from scripture. Um, it's an idea taken from Jesus's prayer in John 17. You can tell me to live in this world, but not to be of it. And it sounds right. I get it. I'm not debating that. 
The problem is it doesn't tell me what I'm supposed to do instead. It doesn't tell me how to do that, right? It's framed as a negative. It tells me what not to do, but it doesn't describe how a disciple of Jesus is to function as they live in the midst of Babylon every day. So maybe it would be helpful to adjust the popular phrase just a little bit, turn it into positive intentional action. So what if we said this instead? Christians are not of the world, but we are sent into it. And so y'all, when the world looks at us, they are supposed to see an alternative community. They should be able to tell the difference between Babylon and the church. When the church looks no different than the world around it, and I'm not talking about just the way we dress or the way we look, I'm talking about our souls. When our nature and our character looks no different than the world around us, then we are of no benefit to anyone. We're just adding to the noise. We're not proclaiming the good news of life in God's kingdom. We're just aping and promoting the values of whatever Babylon happens to be in charge at that time. And unfortunately, we all know this, it happens. Churches fail. And we know even from recent history, when a church sides with culture rather than the truth of scripture, when the church says this thing that scripture teaches, we just can't tolerate it anymore because we have evolved past that and we believe different, better things. It's one thing for the world to think that, they're probably supposed to, but when the church starts to agree with that, then we're of no use to anyone and we're just adding to the noise. We are called to be a people who can withstand the temptation and the seductions of those marks of Babylon I read a minute ago. We're called to be a people who keep Jesus at the center of everything always. A people who aren't seduced by the world around us. A people who seek biblical justice for all of God's image bearers. Who will trust in God, not in material stuff who don't just respond to violence immediately with violence, who can see through deception and half-truth, a people who refuse to give their ultimate allegiance and worship to anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, a people who are not of the world, but who are sent into it to love it and serve it, even in its brokenness. And look, we get nothing done by just sitting around and judging Babylon for being Babylon. Babylon's supposed to be Babylon, that's the truth. God's the judge. We are to remember, Christ found me in my brokenness. He descended into the chaos of my life and is day by day making me new again and he wants to do the same for everyone who has been deceived by evil who is living in that brokenness. And what's incredible is that to do that, he's using broken people like us. I mean, an honest question. How many of you found your way to Jesus all by yourself? How many of you found your way to Jesus without any outside influence? I'd imagine none of you did. I came to Jesus because of my sweet grandmother and I found my way back to Jesus after I walked away because of a professor in college. All throughout my life, people stepped in and showed me there's another way. The family that would become my in-laws showed me that church can function and be a church. 
we can be that beautiful kingdom that people are desperately looking for. Every Tuesday, uh, I get to teach chapel for the preschool. And every week, uh, we sing this song. Um, Every week we sing it and I forget it. So, uh, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Oh, come on. I'm in the Lord's army. Kingdom of God has its own army, it has its own cavalry, but not one that's armed with weapons of war. Instead, it's one that's armed with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, because those are the only weapons that can destroy hatred and evil. This kingdom of cavalry doesn't carry a flag, it carries its own cross. And that's what the true church of Jesus does lives as an alternative community that shows the world there is another way, makes the choice to follow Jesus and shine the light. A people that can show the world that the violence and noise and chaos and injustice, it just doesn't win. Jesus wins. I don't care who your Pharaoh, your Caesar, your King, or your president might be. Jesus is the King of King and Lord of Lords and Jesus wins. And if somebody took the time, multiple people took the time to do that for me, I have no choice but to respond and do the same for others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're trusting in you as you continue to guide us through uh, difficult stuff. Um, So we pray that you would help us to see how to be a people who can just honestly Recognize things for what they are and not turn to hatred or anger or frustration or just all of the things that boil up in this world, but find our peace, our hope, our comfort in you and then shine that light wherever we go. Just the people who expect to see a broken world act like a broken world, but have enough compassion and hope that you can enter in and change the lives of people one at a time. Bring them into your church. Help them fall in love with that woman that represents your people until they could spend forever with you in glory. So give us the courage and the strength to be a part of that story as it continues. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.